Well, I thought, I thought it might be uh, fun to make up a talk together tonight. And if you're new here, this is something we do periodically every month or two, where you need, your part is to consider what, if, if you were walking in the door here to a Dharma talk, what would you want to hear? What, what, do you, what would you want to hear talked about? What would be relevant to you? What would be interesting to you? What would be exciting for you? What would be most vital for you? To really consider what would you want the Dharma talk to be about tonight? And then I'll, I'll take a bunch of themes from people and then I'll do my best to try and make a Dharma talk based on the themes that you offer. So take a moment and consider what, what would you like the Dharma talk to be about tonight? What would really be important to you or have some juice for you? About transitions. Transitions and letting go. Okay. Right understanding. The nature of love. Pardon? The nature of love. The nature of love. Sounds like that ties in with right understanding. The nature of love. Courage and practice. Courage and practice. Uh, bringing realization from the cushion out into the world. Mm-hmm. So... Realization from cushion into the world. Uh, any any particular part of the world? It's so Re easy here. So easy on the cushion. It's so easy. Uh -huh. And you might have these nice experiences, whatever you want to call them, but when you're interacting with other people, to bring that into manifestation. So in interaction, okay. Imperfection, the whole Dharma talk will be about that. <laughs> dying and death. Death and dying. Yeah. CJ? Making decisions. Making decisions. Enlightenment, and then I'm back there on the aisle. Um, negative thoughts. Negative thoughts. I think we have enough for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you make decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Negative thoughts. Okay, let me let me just see what we have here. Okay. Um, Let's start with courage. Uh, 
in practice. Um, courage. The word courage is from the French. It really has to do with the heart. And uh, I don't think there's any, there isn't any real practice without courage in practice. Because practice, what's being asked of us, when we use, we throw this word around a lot, practice. What, is it, what does that mean? You know, some people think practice means sitting on the cushion. Some people think practice means reading, you know, Dharma books. Or, but what practice means, in, in my understanding, in my mind, is how are we going to deal with this fact that we're alive? How, how are we going to uh, take this time, which is so ephemeral, and what are we going to do with it? So it asks us to practice means we are confronting, we are addressing the most basic of existential human questions, which is about our life and our death. Because in, if there is no life without death, there is no death without life. They're totally connected. And in Zen, you'll always see it written, it'll say, uh, uh, great is the matter of life hyphen and hyphen death because they want to connect them. They always want to show that they're connected, life and death. They're not really separate. They're not two things. You can't have one without the other. And the, and the emphasis there is great is the matter of life and death. Great is the matter. That it's actually really important, our lives. And they're important because they're precious, because they're temporary, and because we've got this quite unique opportunity, which is the opportunity to realize what is it to be a human being? What is it to the depth? What is it to the, to the height? Well, however you want to say it. What, what's, the, what's the degree of maturity that we can begin to understand, realize, and make real? And if we're going to turn to this great question, great is the matter of life and death, there's no way to do it without courage. It takes courage. It's daunting. It's frightening at times. Sometimes people think courage means to act as if there's no fear. Uh, I would suggest that maybe what courage is, is acting with fear, without having to pretend or, or, or get past the fear, but in the light of fear, in the light of not knowing, in the light of confusion, in the light of seeing how temporary we are, in the light of seeing how fragile things are, and that we go forward with what we value, even still. Even, even given that, really, we're, we're all going to die. And sometimes people hear that, you know, there's this famous Zen story about Katagiri Roshi, who was Suzuki Roshi's disciple here at Zen Center. And then he went to Minnesota and founded the Minnesota Zen Center. And 
at a certain point, they, had, they were trying to raise money for a building, and they had all their donors come. Uh, uh, and, uh, and they wanted Roshi to give a talk. And finally, he comes in in his robes and all, and he's supposed to talk to the, to the donors, you know, and they're all sitting there, and, you know, and they're having little, I don't know, what, whatever you eat at those little things, you know. And he came in, and he looked at them, and he said, you're all going to die. <laughs> you're all going to die. And that was his whole teaching. <laughs> I don't think he raised a lot of money in that one. <laughs> you know, it's not. But he was giving them the most profound teaching. Great is the matter of life and death. If we consider this truth, then the question that is asked of us is how do we want to live our life? What do we want to do with, with our life? What's actually important? And, then, and so just to confront that question takes courage, and then to confront the answer takes courage, right? Because then we see, well, this is the way I'd like to do this. If this is true, if I have you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 more years, whatever it might be for you, then what do I want to do? Well, then it takes courage to do it, right? A lot of people say, well, here's what I want, but I can't do that. Or, you know, I need to, maybe I need to do this and this and this before I can do that. Maybe that's true. Maybe not. What I, th what I think is beautiful about courage is, it's, is we can recognize it in its large manifestation, but also I think there's an everyday courage that we can recognize. That in light of this big question, we get up every day. In light of this big question, great is the matter of life and death, we do our best every day. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're perfectly courageous. It means we're, we're courageous enough to keep going, to keep going and doing the best we can. Courageous enough also to be compassionate about our imperfection. I didn't mean to get to imperfection so soon, but I think it's a good place to go. Because with something like courage, with an ideal like courage, we can start to um, judge ourselves if we're not perfectly courageous. And that's just dukkha. That's just suffering. And it's not skillful. It's not helpful. And remember, the Buddha's teaching is predicated, his whole pedagogy, the whole way that he taught was based on what's skillful, what's helpful, what leads to our long-term happiness and well-being. Rather than, oh, you're supposed to live some ideal, even if the ideal is courage, or even if the ideal is compassion. That actually we're not about uh, mechanically realizing our ideals. But humanly realizing our ideals means to begin to accept our perfect 
imperfection. Again, Suzuki Roshi used to say, you're perfect just as you are, and you could use a little help. <laughs> and then, let me see if I can remember this. In the Shinshin Ming, which is maybe the greatest Zen text of all time, and it, it actually has to do a little bit, not quite courage, but close, with trust. It's called, Shinshin Ming is translated as Verses from the faith mind, or the mind of absolute trust. And, and uh, in the Shinshin Ming, which begins, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. They also say, to be without anxiety about imperfection. Oh, let me think. That's part of it. Let's see if I can get the rest. Realization, here it is, realization is to be without anxiety about imperfection. How's that? Doesn't that make you relax a little bit? <laughs> realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That's really the human understanding of realization. And so imperfection is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And you know in the, in the Sufi tradition, I believe it's Sufi tradition, that the rug makers always make sure there's a mistake in the rug that they make. That the imperfection is the perfection. We, we have these idealized versions, views of perfection. I don't know where we get that. Really, I don't know where we get it. Because it, what, what happens with that kind of view of perfection is we cut off from our humanity. We actually cut off from reality. The, the perfection only exists in our mind. Have you noticed that? It doesn't actually exist in the world. Have you ever met a perfect person? Anybody? Besides me? <laughs> you know, or a perfect situation? You ever notice when you get that perfect relationship, how long it lasts? <laughs> it can last. But the only way it lasts is if you can be without anxiety about imperfection. If you can love the imperfection that is part of our nature. And that is not even, when we, when we accept it in that way, when we open to it in that way, then there, there, then there is no imperfection. It's just humanness. It's just reality. It's, it's starting to have faith or trust or the courage to trust reality rather than trust our idealization of reality, our perfection of reality. And so when we can start to relax a little bit about our imperfection, then making decisions is not such a hard thing. How come? 
because then when we go to make a decision, and we can really, I'll, before I go there, I'll say a couple words about making decisions in a contemplative way. This is something, P, and this is a little bit related to the other question about realization from the cushion into, into life. One of the questions people often have is, how do I make decisions? How do I function? How do I do things? How do I know what's the right thing to do? And there's a different kind of meditation, a different style or kind of contemplation that we can do so that we bring the presence and the wakefulness and the mindfulness we cultivate by, let's say, just being with our body and our breath. We can bring that presence to bear on our action. And what that means is learning how to sit, how to compose and gather and collect and center ourselves, and then how to raise the question or the issue that we're dealing with. And we raise it in a contemplative way. We're not trying to figure it out with our mind. We're trying to be mindful of it. We're trying to let it live in our being so that our intuition can begin to function, so that our inner knowing can begin to express itself, so that our, our information our understanding doesn't just come from our mind, but it comes from our heart. It comes from our body. That we're, we're really there in a full way, in a fully embodied, heartfelt, intelligent way, contemplating the decision we need to make. Whether it's about a relationship, or a job, or a move, or, and those are all transitions. We can contemplate them. Now, part, an important part of any contemplation is not knowing and giving ourselves the room to not know, the space to not know, and, and getting comfortable with the not knowing because that's where the knowing will arise out of. That's where insight comes from. It's not from knowing. It's from not knowing. It's from being present, but present in a way that's totally open. And it doesn't mean we, we have to get rid of all our past knowledge or anything like that. We can, we can use, we can have access to all our understanding about how the world works or how we work or how somebody else works or how economics works or how whatever, the weather works, right? If you need to live in a, you know, a different climate, in a dry climate, well, then you, you're going to take that into account if you consider, am I going to stay in San Francisco or not? But, but there's a way to sit with the question, the, the, the contemplation, and let the answer come rather than figure out the answer. And I'll give you one personal example that I use frequently. When, I'm, when I have to write a Dharma talk, the first thing I do is just sit. And I sit and do some breathing and get centered for a while. And then I bring up the topic. And then I just see, well, what comes? What's the first thing that comes? And then I'll do bullet point. I'll just bullet point whatever starts coming. And then often, and you know, maybe for five minutes, stuff will come. And then I realize, oh, that's, that's all there is. I've got about five minutes to talk here. 
and then I'll sit some more and I'll wait and see, well, maybe there's not enough for a Dharma talk here. I don't know. But I'm open to the question. I'm open to the contemplation. And then, oh, something more comes. Oh, this might be a way I'd like to talk about it. Write that down. And then sit with that. And when we haven't, we don't teach that kind of practice so much, like when you come on a, a Sunday night or in a class, but it's part of meditative life is learning how to contemplate reality. Um, and this then applies to making decisions. And here's the beautiful part about the imperfection. You ready? You can make a mistake. It's okay. You're already not perfect. Nobody's going to come down and kill you, usually. Learning how to make mistakes is a very important part of contemplation because then they inform the contemplation. The, not, the contemplation isn't over when we make the first decision. It's not like, okay, I'm going to live in San Francisco forever. I'm never going to move again. That's, that's not how we work. Okay, I'm going to stay for a year and see what happens. And we stay for a year and we see and we get that information and that informs our contemplation. Now the other place where this imperfection is very important is also in transitions. What kind of transition are you going through? Can you say? Uh -huh. So you're being evicted and you're contemplating going to travel. Right, so you've got a decision and a transition happening, both. One of the ways when you do intensive meditation practice, especially on retreat, especially a retreat of a little bit of length, 10 days or more, at a certain point we'll give instructions to start being aware of the transitions so first we're just going to focus mostly on the sitting and then on the walking and then on the eating. But then at some point we're going to say pay attention to the beginning and ending of each experience. So the sitting begins and ends like the sitting we had. And then the break began and ended. And then now the, then the uh, announcements began and end. Now the Dharma talk has begun and it will end. And we can start to pay attention to the transitions, to the beginnings and endings of experience um, because they're always happening. They're always happening. And it will refine your mindfulness if you can start to notice them. Notice what a beginning of something feels like. The beginning of the bike ride, the end of the bike ride, or the beginning of dinner, and then the end of dinner, or the beginning of whatever, going to the bathroom and then the end of going to the bathroom. There's a beginning and end to each experience. There's a beginning and end to each breath. There's a beginning and end to each moment. And it can start to ground us in the present in a very deep way because actually transitions are happening all the time, all the time. 
And then there are some more dramatic transitions like leaving town or relationship changes, etc. And letting go. What, what's the question about it? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So so this is a lot of letting go. Place you've lived many years. Work, things, right? People, community. Um, I think there are a few important ways to practice with transitions. One is be honest about it. By be honest, I mean, don't let go too soon. Meaning, if there's holding, be mindful of the holding. Don't push away anything. In other words, when, we, when we're creatures where there's certain transitions, often they bring up certain feelings. Sadness, grief, loss, depending on the transition. And so our practice is not just, oh, I let go and I don't feel anything. No, being mindful means actually paying attention, being sensitive to how we might feel. Even when it's a good transition, it can be very sad. Or if we're, you know, we're moving to New York because we got a job, just the job we wanted. It still means we're letting go of people we love or care about and we'll miss them. And so to really stay present for the totality of the experience, that's my understanding of what letting go is about. It's not pushing away anything. It's staying present. And letting go is more of, uh, from the position of right understanding, is the understanding that actually there's nothing we can hold on to in the whole world, really. And so we're, these transitions, that's why transitions become important. We're always having to let go. Dinner, the other person, the Dharma talk, the great bike ride, the, you know, whatever it might be. The dance performance, the music, it's always, it's always just going. There's nothing we can hold on to. Eric Dolphy, one of my heroes when I was young, great jazz musician. He, right, he died very young, about 35, I think. And there's, on his last album, there's a little, a little um, uh, his voice, which I've never heard, right at the end, and they're quoting him from an interview, and he says, music, after it's over, it's gone in the air. You can never capture it again. And it's really true. Even, you know, live music, it's just that's it. It's just alive for a moment. Even if you hear it on tape or on records, I guess they don't do records so much anymore, on uh, CDs or MP3, it's different than that alive experience. The living experience is always a process of letting go. And so right understanding sees letting go not as something we have to do, but as, as a truth that we come into harmony with. And we come into harmony with the truth of letting go by being present with all the ways we tend to hold on. 
by being present with all the contraction that, that might happen in the heart or the mind or the body around letting go. And we learn how to stay present with those experiences and within the, within the uh, blessing of mindfulness, they self-liberate. They, they let go. Why do they let go? Because they can't stay. Things can't stay. It's not the nature of reality. It's all in transition. It ties back to what I said earlier. Great is the matter of birth and death. It's one big transition. And it's all connected. And, this, and the reason it's great is because we have the opportunity to come into harmony with the truth, with the dharma of this ephemeral, changing, fluid uh, uh, nature of reality. That we, not, not just that we come into harmony, we are. We are an expression of that same fluidity. There's no separation between us and the Dharma in this way. When it's, everybody hear that? There's no separation between what, what we are, who we are, and the Dharma, and the truth of, of impermanence, the truth of transition. And when we understand this, then the cushion on the cushion or off the cushion, it's no different. We're on the cushion and we can enjoy that, but that also is just going. Go. That's all it's doing, right? I mean, did you notice that in your sitting? It's just goes, right? Sometimes when we're at the beginning, and this is a good thing, it's not a bad thing. I know, I was really, I loved sitting. I was like, I just want to sit all the time. And I was sitting five times a day at home, at home practice, and I was just trying to make money so I could go on retreat. And You know, it was great. Sitting and sitting and sitting is great. Sitting it's, I'm just sitting here. <laughs> it's not that great. <laughs> no, it is very good. But, but it's all good when we're present. Sitting is only a skillful means. Remember what I said earlier about the Buddha's teaching was all about skillful means. Many, 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 many people in the text, mo most, more people get enlightened talking to the Buddha or hearing a discourse from the Buddha. That's where you hear people getting enlightened in relationship with the Buddha just by hearing him. They don't even have to sit. It's the people who don't get it on hearing him. Then he teaches them how to sit. <laughs> this is for the rest of us. <laughs> Actually, there's another, there's another <coughs> image that's used by the Buddha. It says four different kind of horses and how you train them. And the first horse, you, you don't even have to do anything. And they, you know, you just kind of give the, the a vibe of what you want and the horse follows. And then the second horse, you show them the whip and then they do, they do what you want. And the third horse, you have to hit them a little and then they, they do what you want. And then the fourth horse, you really got to beat that horse. They're called the bleeding horses. And that's where most of us are. We really, takes takes a lot of suffering to get us to hear the Dharma and then to 
have the courage to actually follow it. To really see how temporary life is and how precious it is and then to give ourselves, to really orient our life in the Dharma. And it doesn't mean, I want to be clear here, orienting your life in the Dharma doesn't mean just sitting on the cushion. It means living life fully, completely, and being present within each moment of that life. Whether you're traveling, whether you're at work, whether you're in relationship. And so then, Sitting becomes a skillful means of how do I learn how to stay present here and then how can I let that presence extend or continue in my relationships and in my actions and in my play and in my creativity and in, in my contribution to the world, in politics, however, any area that you're interested in, wherever your heart and that place of courage takes you, the Dharma's there when you're really there. When you're really there, embodied, awake, sensitive. So enlightenment, somebody who asked about enlightenment? What do you want to know about enlightenment? What is enlightenment? Exactly. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I think it might be a more skillful, remember the skillful, might be more skillful to think in terms of enlightenments rather than enlightenment. One of the great blessings of our time is we have access to a tremendous amount of the wisdom of the world, of the human species, from, from every different culture, from every different religion. And even, I'm not going to go into other religions, I'll just stay with Buddhism, but even in Buddhism, there are many different, it's very diverse. There are many different cultures, there's many different uh, 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 peoples who have, um, who have um, uh, where the Dharma got planted, whether it's beginning in India and Nepal and then moving to China and Japan or moving to Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma or moving to Tibet or, and uh, uh, Sakim and uh, um, that's not the country I want. Bhutan, thank you. Um, um, And then, of course, now to the West. And you see, it actually looks different, tastes different, and has different versions of enlightenment depending on the culture and how it's lived and how it, it gets planted and then lived and then realized in the different cultures. And so you'll have, even and even within even in the smallest of cultures, let's say Thai 
or Burmese in the Burmese culture. Different teachers will argue about what enlightenment is. Different enlightened teachers will disagree about what enlightenment is. So it's not so helpful f usually to say too much about it. I will give you a very traditional Buddhist answer though. The Buddha mostly didn't define it. He talked about it more as the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's a good bet when you realize that those are absent, greed, aversion, and delusion, that when they're absent from your experience, that there is a certain kind of freedom that is present. And often, and now, now one of the great Thai masters, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, he write, he, and you know, one of the terms for enlightenment is nibbana or nirvana, like the rock group. Um, uh, I think they got it from the Buddhists. Um, uh, he talked about ordinary nirvana. He talked to every day. Actually, you can go online when you go home, and there's a text, a little treatise he wrote called, it's either Ordinary Nibbana or Everyday Nibbana. And it's a beautiful understanding of, of the recognition of freedom. And this is, of course, one version of enlightenment. I want to be careful here. But it is a version really based on the absence of greed, hatred, and aversion. And it's, it's about everyday nibbana and that actually people don't recognize it. People don't, we don't recognize freedom because we have a very idealized, pedestalized idea about what enlightenment's going to be, right? I mean, that would be a good exercise. If we all went around and said, what do we think enlightenment's going to look like, right? Oh, I'm going to be about a foot off the ground when I walk down the street and I'll never get upset again about anything, and I'm going to this, and everybody will see how enlightened I am, and even though there's no self anymore, you know, right? <laughs> and he, he really talked about how simple it might be. And the Buddha said, after he was enlightened, in the text it says he was walking back and forth, and he had this thought, Right? So you can still have thoughts in enlightenment. I want to make sure you all know that. Because you might be thinking right now something and it might not mean that you're not enlightened. So he's, he thought, people won't understand this. It's too sublime. He didn't say it's too complex or it's too magnificent or it's too something. He said it's too sublime, subtle may be simple. And it's why sometimes what you'll hear in Zen is that uh, uh, enlightenment is nothing special, which is one of Suzuki Roshi's great teachings, nothing special. He said, before you get enlightened, it's something special. After you get enlightened, it's nothing special. So. You know, and then there's all the, the other side. Then there's other ways that enlightenment is talked about as the magnificence and the beauty and the depth and the richness and the 
you know, with all that kind of language, you know, and they're both true. They're both true. I, I, one of the things I like the Buddha, uh, about the Buddha's original teaching, again, this, this, this skillfulness, and the skillfulness, he says, and this is part of his skillfulness, he says, he asks the monks and nuns at some point, he picks up a handful of leaves from the ground, he's in a big forest, he says, tell me, monks and nuns, this, this handful of leaves, is it greater or smaller than all the leaves on all the trees in the forest? So if you were a monk or a nun, what would you say? Smaller, thank you. Right? It's smaller. He's got a few leaves in his hands. He's in a big forest. He says, what I know, what I've realized, is like all the leaves on the trees. What I teach is like the leaves in my hand. And then he goes on saying, why is that? Because, he's, and he says, I teach suffering and the cause of suffering and freedom from suffering and the path that leads to freedom. And he says, and I teach this because um, this is skillful, because this is what leads to freedom. And so he didn't teach a lot of metaphysics. He wouldn't answer questions about metaphysics much. He would teach about skillfulness in suffering and the end of suffering. And so it's very, you could just look at enlightenment as the end of suffering. Okay. And part of that, part of the way the end of suffering looks, in a very simple way, it's great, my pen's running out of ink now. Perfect. The end of the talk. The, the, the way, one of the ways that this simplicity expresses itself is through love. That when there's an absence of greed and of aversion and of delusion and of confusion and of self-centeredness and self-concern, when that's in abeyance, the heart is open. And it's the nature of the heart. Love is the nature of our heart. Love is the heart's natural radiance. It's natural for us to love. And it's not, oh, we're loving. No, it's no, that, that's part of our nature. That's more inherent, innate, ontological. In Buddhism, the word that we use for love is metta, or loving kindness, or friendliness. And remember, this love is a boundless love. It's a limitless love. It doesn't discriminate by time or space or place or uh, any of the ways we might discriminate by nationality or race or culture or gender. It's of a whole nother order. And it's not something far away from us. It can be realized. It is realized through the simple practice of being present and beginning to see what's here, what the truth is, what the Dharma is that is that we are a manifestation of. And this love is a pure manifestation of the Dharma. So we need to stop. I apologize if I missed some of these, but I did my best.
and I knew it wouldn't be perfect. <laughs> Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.